Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, is called the, the Great Commission. Not because it's better than all the other commissions in the Bible, but because it includes all the other commissions. Go and make disciples of all nations. Includes the whole of our duty once we understand what makes a disciple. And it means two things. Bringing people to Christ through faith and baptism and teaching them to do all things that Christ commands. The Great Commission is also all-inclusive because it demands that we do all that Jesus commanded. Therefore, uh, we are engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission whenever we help others obey Christ. And we never will be finished with the Great Commission until we do everything Christ has told us to do. Now, it is obvious then, as a minister, that my agenda is already set. My whole task is to call people of Christ and then do all that's in my power to help them keep and fulfil Christ's commandments. Ephesians 4, 11 to 3 is the great commission to, to, the, to the ministers that says, So Christ himself gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip his people for service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so Paul, what Paul teaches is the inescapable biblical logic of the task of therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I will always be with you to the very end of the age. So in order to fulfil the great commission that we observe everything Jesus commands, we need to know whom Jesus wants us to invite to the feast. We need to know whom Jesus wants us to invite to church. Who should we invite to church? In our Gospel text in Luke chapter 14, it's Saturday. It's the culmination of the Jewish Sabbath. And verse 1 tells us that Jesus has been invited to dinner by one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Now, we need to know that the Pharisees were one of the most zealous of all law keepers amongst the Jews. There's no evidence that Jesus was ever invited back a second time to this Pharisee's house. And it's, it's, it's not hard to see why he wasn't invited back to this Pharisee's house. It seemed like every time Jesus opened his mouth, he undressed somebody's hypocrisy, didn't he, in this particular conversation. And there, there never was another man whose mouth was so closely tied to the human heart as Jesus' words were. Was there, any, was there ever a word that came out of Jesus' mouth that did not touch the ultimate issues of the soul? No man ever spoke like Jesus. John 18.37 says, For this very thing I was born, and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So when Jesus spoke about uh, spoke out at this Saturday dinner, and when we hear him through the Gospels today, a division is created. 
Those who are of the truth listen and obey. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Those who are not of the truth do not have ears or eyes to see. Uh, and Jesus says to them in John 8, 43 and onwards, Why do you not know what I say? Is it because you are not able to hear my words? The one who is of God hears God's words or hears the words of God. This is the reason, of, this is the reason you do not hear because you, do, you are not of God. So all of us at Christchurch need to take heed on how we hear the words of Jesus. At least we be found indifferent or antagonistic to his teaching. And so prove ourselves to be outside the fold. And so my prayer this morning is that the way that we hear today will prove that we are among the number of whom Jesus said, Father, I give them the words you gave me and they accept them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. So the first thing Jesus does at this Saturday dinner is to heal a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. That's what dropsy is. It's edema. It's, it's edema. And so it's the abnormal swelling of the body. And so Jesus heals this man at this Saturday. It's the first thing he does. Perhaps he was laying there outside the Pharisee's house uh, as Jesus entered or as, and the rest of the, 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 the dinner party entered. And this, uh, this happened quite often in ancient times. Beggars would literally camp outside the compounds of rich people, hoping for food scraps from servants or the odd coin from the master of the house or the mistress of the house. The other example that comes to mind is Lazarus, who, you, who, who used to lay outside the rich man's gates in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. A text we'll get to later and expand a bit more. But Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees if they thought healing on the Sabbath was lawful. And then what did they do? They did not answer. They did not answer, but their silence clearly meant, no, it's not lawful. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 13, for those of us who came to last week's service. And in verse 14, the synagogue ruler said, this thing he said, there are six days in which uh, we ought to work, or work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath day. And remember that Jesus healed some, uh, the, the lady who was buckled over, who was bent over by a demon on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, and he got berated for doing it on the Sabbath. So Jesus said here at the dinner the same thing that he said in the synagogue in Luke chapter 13. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well, will immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. Again, no answer. Jesus, Jesus leaves it with them, and he leaves it with us too, the reader, to draw the inference. Namely, you experts of the law, you Pharisees, have a keen interest in your own welfare. When the law seems to stand between you and the safety of your valuable ox, you have no difficulty revisiting and revising the law. The perversion of your own comfort is clearly higher, is a higher commitment than the rigorous keeping of the Sabbath. 
But when it comes to another person's need, whose illness is of whose illness is no skin off your own back, then the law becomes conveniently rigid to protect you from involvement. And so here we see the wickedness of religious people whose highest love, whose God is not the Lord Jesus, but selfish convenience. We as human beings are at our worst when we are religious. We use religion to protect ourselves from inconvenience. We use religion to protect ourselves from disturbance of needy strangers or that person who requires extra grace, that, that extra morsel of patience that we're unwilling to give. That's the first thing Jesus does when he comes to dinner. Not the most flattering thing to do to your host, is it? But perhaps the most loving. Can you imagine Jesus wandering in and then just berating you for, 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 for your, your, your lack of compassion? The second thing Jesus does is to undress the pride of the dinner guests that are right there in front of everybody. He has been sitting there watching them come in. And what does he look for? It's not how they are dressed or what they, where they have come from or what job they do. No, he doesn't do that. He looks for what they love. Jesus always watches until he knows where our treasure is. Because where our treasure is, is where our heart is. And Jesus wants the heart. So Jesus watches and sees where their treasure is. And he sees they love the praise of men. They love to be esteemed for occupying seats of honour. And he watches how they move in and out of conversations, weaving their way unnoticed to the best seat. And nobody fools Jesus. He's the master. He's the absolute master of every situation. And what does Jesus think about the guests whose treasure is in the praise of men? Listen to what he says when in two other places in Luke's Gospel about this form of idolatry. In Luke 11, verses 43, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and salutations in the marketplaces. In Luke 20, 46, 47, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and love salutations in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honour at the feasts who devour widows' houses for the, for, uh, and, and for the, a pretense make long prayers, they will receive their great condemnation. Two things go hand in hand with loving places of honour at a feast. Exploitation of the weak and condemnation. If your treasure is in the praise of men and a widow's house stands in your way, you will destroy it. But in the end, your own house will collapse in the flood of God's judgment. So Jesus here says in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be, will be exalted. So if you pursue the seats of honour on earth, you will have no seat at all in heaven. That's what Jesus is telling us. Now we would think Jesus has ruffled enough feathers at this 
one dinner party as he exposed the legalists' ability to twist the law and in order to protect their own selfish convenience and exposing the pride of those who crave the praises of people, the praises of men who would look uh, who, who, who would think the party is you, you think the party is over now that Jesus has done those two things. But it's not done yet. There's a third thing. And so the man who invited Jesus, he turns to Jesus and he says to him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Up until now, Jesus has talked to the guests, and now he turns to the host. And what he's effectively saying is, don't touch that snake, at least it bites you and you'll die. Don't climb that rope, at least it breaks and you'll fall. Don't invite your friends and brothers and relatives and rich neighbours to dinner, at least you be repaid in kind. So this is an unearthly argument that Jesus is putting forward. He's saying danger, repayment ahead. Warning, this repayment may be dangerous to your health. Now who on earth this morning talks like that? Probably somebody whose kingdom is not of this world. Somebody who's, who knows that a thousand years on earth is like yesterday when it is gone. Somebody who knows that our life is but a mist that appears and in a moment it vanishes away. Someone who knows that whoever saves their life now will lose it later and whoever loses it now in love will save it later. Someone who knows that there will be a resurrection unto eternal life, a resurrection of the just to live with God for a million millennia of, a, of eons, for eternity, but only, only if he is our God on earth. <coughs> Jesus, this morning, is that somebody. No man has ever spoke like this man. And the people who call him Lord ought not to be like any other people. So take heed on how you hear there are some whose first and only reaction to Jesus' words will be, well, he can't mean that because then we would not be able to have Sunday church morning teas. No family gatherings together and not even the Lord's Supper. That would be wrong as well. And so having diffused the text and then bent the sword of the Spirit, such people move on to the next passage and the right and right on through the whole New Testament, justifying themselves. And just like the Pharisee, they manipulate the law of Christ to protect their unruffled preferences, their unruffled conveniences, and their power. And so there is no better defence against the truth than a half-truth for religious people. And the half-truth is Jesus does not intend to end family meals and gatherings with friends. But the truth is, there is in every human heart, this is the truth Jesus is talking about, 
there is in every human heart a terrible and powerful tendency to live by the law of earthly repayment, the law of reciprocity. There is a subtle and relentless intent within our flesh to do what makes life as comfortable as possible and to avoid what will inconvenience us or agitate our placid routine. The most sanctified people amongst us must do battle every day so that not to be enslaved by the universal tendency to always act for the greatest earthly payoff. The people who lightly dismiss this text as a, as a, rhetor a rhetorical overstatement are probably blind to the impossibility of overstating the corruption of the human heart and its deceptive power to make us think all is well when we are enslaved by the law of reciprocity. The law which says always do what will pay off in convenience, that will pay off in undisturbed pleasures, that will pay off in uh, domestic comfort and social tra tranquility. Jesus' words are radical because our sin is radical this morning. It's radical. Jesus waves a red flag because there is destruction ahead for people governed by the law of reciprocity. The law which always looks for a payoff. A payoff in convenience. A payoff in preference. A payoff this morning in social comforts. Now I stress the danger of living for earthly repayment, for ease, for convenience, for comfort, for tranquility, because Jesus stresses it in this text. Listen to these other uh, sayings of Jesus, Luke 6, 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you already have received your comfort. The comfortable are condemned because the use of their money shows their heart. They use it solely to secure their lives and the comfort and the consolation instead of using their excess to help meet the needs of the suffering. Now Jesus, as I said earlier in the introduction, Jesus takes this saying from Luke 6, 24 and makes it a parable in Luke 16, 19 to 32. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he said, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received back your good things. Received back your good things. And Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So why didn't the rich man give Lazarus the crumbs from his table? Because Lazarus was in no position to pay 
any good thing back to that man. The rich man's life was governed by the law of reciprocity. He was governed by the earthly benefits he could receive back in all his dealings. And he wore his finest clothes and feasted sumptuously and did not inconvenience himself with the poor sick man and at his very door, at, his very, at the very gate of his compound. And so he went to Hades, where everybody will go who uses their money to feast sumptuously with comfortable, respectable guests instead of using it to relieve suffering. Jesus said, when you give a feast, when you hold an event, when you hold a gathering, invite those who are least privileged. Invite those who don't normally belong. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. What an amazing thing for Jesus to say. However, that doesn't mean that from time to time we screw on some self-imposed willpower to exercise some disinterested benevolence. We tend to do that from time to time. We shouldn't do that. Jesus turns around and says, your self-denial for those who are at a lower socioeconomic level than you, those who are less educated than you, those who come from broken and dysfunctional families, those who come from broken and dysfunctional relationships, your self-denial, your making space for those people Jesus said, will bring you a great blessing. So as we gather as Jesus' church this morning, whom should we invite? Acts chapter 20 verse 35 says, it's more blessed to give than receive. Mark 8.36 says, if you lose your life in love, for my sake, you will save it. So why does it make such an eternal deliverance, eternal difference this morning? Whom we invite to church. It's not so much that Sunday morning is all determining. It's not. Or even <laughs> that a Christian church meeting is all determining. It's not. The reason why it makes an eternal difference is that along with many other occasions, it reveals where our treasure is. It reveals where our treasure is. G is Jesus with his commandments and purposes and his promises more valuable to us than tradition and convenience and preference? Is Jesus, is Jesus our treasure this morning? Or are the things and pleasures of this world our treasure? That question is not decided by you inviting someone to church. However, you should invite someone to church. But the question, is Jesus your treasure, is decided hour by hour, day by day, as to whether we are willing to inconvenience ourselves for those who can't repay us, who can't repay our kindness, who can't repay anything that we offer, or whether we avoid them, and so preserve our placid routine and preserve our preference for the sake of they cannot repay us. 
So the big question as we close is, is Jesus our treasure? Or are the things and the pleasures of this world our treasure? I pray that we will see the 21st century connection between this opportunity and Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 and 14, our gospel text this morning. So please pray with me. Yes, Heavenly Father, how often my giving is corrupted by self-interest and the hope of favours in return. Father God, you gave your only begotten Son to me. Without hope of return, I can do nothing for you. There's no favour I can do. But you taught me that love means giving without expectations. That there is more happiness in giving than receiving. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us to realise that we are all brothers and sisters in you. We ask that you help us to remember that we are all loved by you unconditionally and that in you we will find our true selves. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Amen.